world should be registered. Again, I just want to remind you of the phrasing that Luke uses right here at the very beginning of chapter 2. He's reminding us that these are real events that happened at a real time. It came to pass in those days. This isn't once upon a time. These aren't fanciful stories from Mount Olympus having to do with make-believe gods. This is God working in real life history. I think sometimes we imagine biblical times being some very, very different than our own day. But, but the reality of what life was was very much similar to what the reality of life is for us today as well. And in those days, notice right there, verse one, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The story of Jesus's life began during the reign of one of the most remarkable men of history. Something like a political savior for the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus ushered in a long period of peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire, sort of unparalleled for the period before him. He brought order and stability and prosperity, peace to the Roman world. He was something of a political savior. But I'll tell you something else. There was a very high expectation in Jesus' day that they needed more than a political savior. And I think about that in our modern day. Listen, we all want political solutions. We all wish that the government was better and that things worked better in our nation or in other people's nations. I mean, we always want government and our rulers to do better. And that's a good thing. And you should vote accordingly. But nobody should mistake the fact that we need something more than political saviors. We need the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But it was a world that had somewhat of a political savior already reigning that Jesus came into. And what happens next? Verse two, he says, this census first took place while Crinius was governing Syria. You see, verse one tells us that Caesar Augustus made this command that all the world. And of course, we understand that meaning the whole Roman world, which was a very good part of the actual globe at that time. But all the Roman world should be registered, each one in their individual families, going back to their family homes or sort of ancestral homes so they could be registered and so that they could be taxed. Now, this idea of a census connected with taxation was well known in Roman history. We have actual records of very similar kinds of censuses and taxation. Census. Did you say censuses? You don't say sensi? No, that wouldn't be it at all. Multiple census censuses. You understand what I mean. But we actually have records of very similar events happening in Egypt during the very same era. And so we're given another marking point here. This actually happened during the time when a certain man was governing over Syria. And now verse 3, the very logical conclusion. It says, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. I just want you to think and meditate for a moment. What a remarkable thought it is. That here's this one man, Caesar Augustus. He's sitting in his ivory palaces there in Rome. And he's up there at the, at the, the height of power. And he simply issues a decree. This is how it should be. I command this. Everybody go home to their home city so they can be registered. I can put a tax on all of them. And just to use a figure of speech, he speaks and the rest of the world says, okay, we'll do it. He says, jump. And they say, how high? That there's a couple in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary who by this time had been married. They were betrothed, but they got married sort of in a hurry with the news of of, uh, Mary's pregnancy. 
They were married at this time. And I just want you to notice what happened here is that it's remarkable that this one man in Rome gives a decree and all the world does this thing. Could you blame Augustus for sort of relishing and maybe reveling in his own power at this? There he sits back on his throne in Rome. He says, look at the powerful man. There's nobody on the whole earth that has the kind of power that I have. No wonder that the Roman emperors thought of themselves and the people thought of them as being gods. Because if any men walked the earth, they had some kind of godlike power in those days. It was these very Roman emperors. And so what we're standing think, oh, how impressive it is. And Caesar Augustus and the world worshipped him. Sometimes literally they worshipped him. We take a further step back and we realize that Caesar Augustus is just a puppet in the hand of God. That God, and please understand, I'm using a figure of speech, that God has a problem. Figure of speech, God never has problems. But so to speak, God has a problem. Because there, Mary and Joseph are where? They're in Nazareth. And, and what would be the plan? The plan would be for her to give birth very naturally right there in Nazareth. But there's a problem. The scriptures specifically say that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So how do you get Mary and Joseph, who would not be inclined to travel towards the later months of her pregnancy, how would you get them to make the 80-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem? You just move the puppet, the puppet being Caesar Augustus, and make him do what you want him to do. And all the while, Caesar Augustus thinks that he's in charge. But he's being overcharged, overmanaged. He's being overrun, so to speak, by the power and the guidance and the moving of our great God. No, no, about you. That, that doesn't make God terrible in my eyes. It makes God wonderful. He knows. He runs. He has a beautiful plan for the universe, for his great plan of redemption, and for your individual life. So he gave this order. The whole world was going to act upon it. Verse 4, let's see how it impacted them. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they make this 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Galilee. In those days, if you weren't traveling too hard, you would cover about 20 miles a day. So this was a three- or four-day journey from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. You're not far from Jerusalem at all when you're at Bethlehem. So they come to this city, this ancestral home of King David and the Davidic line. They come to Bethlehem and they're there just outside of the city of Jerusalem with what he came with. Verse five says with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, you've seen this represented so many times. You've heard it preached about in Christmas sermons, probably dozens of times. And in your conception, there's Mary, you know, at eight months and three weeks of pregnancy waddling into Bethlehem just about ready to you know let it go we don't know that at all it may very well be that they came into Bethlehem several weeks or even a couple months before she was due there's nothing in the text itself to indicate that as soon as they came into Bethlehem she gave birth Now, some people might imply that because later on we're going to find out that there was no room in the inn where they want to stay. And so they had to have some sort of outside accommodation. But even that's not necessary from the case. So we really don't know. 
Maybe they came in right at the moment of her birth or very close to it. Or maybe they had stayed in Bethlehem from some period of time. We really don't know. We just simply know this in verse 6, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, in my study for this uh, teaching tonight, it's interesting. Every time you go back and teach a passage again, you find out new things. And, and what I found is sort of some contradictory evidence. I find some people who quote some historical sources and believe that, yes, Mary would have been required to travel with Joseph for the census and taxation. But I found other people in the past that have said, no, their reading of the history says that Mary would not have been required to make the trip with Joseph, but that she came just because they thought it was good for her to come. And you might ask yourself the question, why would a woman who perhaps was in the later stages of her pregnancy, why would she walk 80 miles from Bethlehem to, excuse me, from Nazareth to Bethlehem to make this trip and and to give birth when she was away from her family, away from her mother, uh, away from all that support system? that she would normally find. And I think, you know what? It's just possible, and I can't say there's certainty, but it's just possible that Joseph and Mary were sort of itching for an excuse to get out of Nazareth. I mean, can you imagine the social pressure that was upon this young couple? Can you imagine the whispers behind their backs? Because this woman was pregnant out of order, out of, you know, the plan that everybody had for them, out of character for both Mary and Joseph, who were godly people. And you and I today, we understand the Bible and the biblical teaching, and we're firmly convinced that Jesus' conception was a virginal conception, and that it was done by a miracle, and that there was no prior sexual intercourse between Mary and Joseph, or Mary and anybody else. But we have to admit, that would not be commonly believed back in that day. And so I'm just painting a picture and realizing that perhaps Mary said, Joseph, you're going to Bethlehem? Sign me up too. I'm happy to go with you. And they came down to Bethlehem. They came to that place. And then what happens here at verse 7? Verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The first thing I want you to notice about verse 7 is how simply it states it. If we were writing the story, wouldn't we put a lot more drama in it? Wouldn't we include so much and more details? And by the way, we have every reason to believe, I can't prove it, but we have every reason to believe that Dr. Luke personally interviewed Mary for the eyewitness account of what happened. What I'm just trying to say is we have every reason to believe we can't say it with certainty, but it's probable that Luke knew much more about the personal details of the story than he tells us right here. But sort of in this very understated way, Luke just gives us the bare facts. And he says it. And it's very it's very touching. If you look at verse seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know what the first thing I noticed about those simple words? Nobody was with her. She did this alone. Now, again, well, maybe there were other people there. The text doesn't mention it. The most plain, direct reading of the statement is that here's this couple 
And this girl, we don't know exactly how old she was. Some people say 15, 16. I don't know. Somewhere between, let's say, 16 and 20. We don't know for sure. But a young girl. She wasn't old. She was young. And there's no mention of any help at the birth. Matter of fact, it says very specifically, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. If there was some help there, don't you think that somebody else would have done that for her? You just wonder what the interchange was when she explained all this to Dr. Luke and how many tears gently rolled down her face as she just relayed the the, the pain, the emotion, the drama of such a significant moment that not only did the Son of God, did God, the second person of the Trinity, take on human flesh and come into the world, but I delivered him with my own hands. I was the first one to look upon that face and I wrapped him in the swaddling cloths. She brought him forth. Separated from all her family, from all of supporting friends. They're all back in Nazareth. No, it's very much a feeling of it's her and Joseph. And she wrapped the child herself. I like what one commentator said, Morris. He says that it points to a lonely birth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this particular question, but some people wonder, when did this happen? Did this happen on sort of the traditional date that we recognize in our culture of December 25th? All I can say is this, probably not. Now, if I worked really hard, I could build some kind of case for the possibility of a December 25th date, but probably not. It probably happened at different... There's other historical uh, reasons, and and some of them aren't actually so nice as to why December 25th became to be recognized as the date of the birth of the Son of God. But but probably not the December 25th date. Although, again, I I can't say with 100% possibility, no, it's impossible that's a date, but let's say somewhere between 97 and 98%. It's probably not. They brought forth her firstborn son, verse 7, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. But what I really like about verse 7 is not just the swaddling cloths. Although, by the way, one commentator points out that that term swaddling cloths, the ancient Greek word is connected with the word to tear. These were torn strips of fabric that they wrapped that humble baby in and then they laid him in what? A manger. Now, you and I know what a manger is. We see a manger out at every Christmas time. We, it's a very sort of romantic, very sweet. Oh, there's the baby Jesus in a manger. You know what a manger really is? A manger is a feeding trough. And customarily in that culture, they'd make feeding troughs out of stone, not out of, uh, out of wood. They, they would make a stone feeding trough. As you can see right there, we put one up on the screen. It, just, it was a place where you put water or hay or whatever food that the animal would eat. And I don't mean to be gross about this, but I mean, these, are, these things are streaked with the saliva of big, gross animals. They don't smell nice. But obviously, they made it the best they could. They put some fresh hay in there. They cleaned it up the best they could. And they laid that child in a manger, which would have been a strange, strange sight. Why did they do it there? Why didn't Jesus enjoy some better care? You saw it right there in verse 7. Because there was no room for them in the inn. No room. Now I want you to understand, this happened in some kind of public place. If there was no room for them at the inn, it means that there was a lot of people around. 
And, and there was a good stream of travel going between, especially if it was anywhere near a feast time, which we don't know for certain, but if it was anywhere near a feast time, there was a good measure of travel going between uh, uh, the Galilee area and the Jerusalem area. There were people around. There, there was no room for them in the inn. And so there in the midst, there's children playing, there's women gossiping, there's men talking. There's just all this sort of normal hubbub of human activity. And the most sacred, holy event is happening right in front of their eyes and they don't even know it. This is the same way today. Don't we see that right in front of our own eyes? That sometimes the most sacred, amazing world-shaking, eternity-moving things happens, and it'll never make a headline of a newspaper. It'll never be discussed. You know, it'll never trend on the Twitter feed, so to speak. But man, it is what's really important. And this is what was happening right in front of their faces. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. By the way, the shepherds of Bethlehem, they were known to take care of the flocks that supplied the temple with sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? That the same lambs that would be used for sacrifice would be watched over by some of these very shepherds. We don't know if it was the exact shepherds, of course. But wouldn't that just be picturesque in God's plan? That the ones who watched over the lambs that would be destined for sacrifice, that those were the very same ones who received the special announcement. Oh, by the way, and I'll just quickly mo- mention, this is another reason to believe that it was not the December 25th date that we did, because the shepherds were out in their field. And normally, customarily, shepherds would not remain out in their field into late December. They, they, they came in and they didn't stay out in the field with their flocks uh, after November. And so this is another reason to believe that there's something suspect about the customary December 25th date. Now, uh, by the way, let me just say, and I'll just try to say this quickly. I don't have a problem with the December 25th day. (laughs) Just to say this, that because we know no other date with certainty, why not pick a date and use one that our culture recognizes? And so we should take advantage of December 25th and our culture's recognition of that date to preach Jesus as loud as we can. If we don't have a problem with the date December 25th, uh, if the whole culture decided on another date, well, fine, let's run with that. This is the date our culture recognizes it. We should be happy about that rather than sad about it. Verse 9. So the shepherds are out there in the fields. Verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So there's the shepherds out in their fields, just just doing their work for an evening. And who comes to them? An angel comes. We're not told which angel. We know earlier in the Gospel of Luke, it was specifically Gabriel who did some of the great announcements to both Zacharias and then to Mary. We're not told which specific angel this was, but first a singular angel comes and makes this dramatic announcement to the shepherds. And friends, this is just absolutely remarkable. 
that the angel chose of all the people that filled Jerusalem and Bethlehem and that whole area of Judea at that time, that they chose shepherds to make the announcement to. Now, you and I look back through sort of the the foggy lens of history and we sort of romanticize the biblical shepherd. We think of shepherds like Moses. We think of shepherds like David. And we say, oh, great, the shepherd, what a noble man after God's own heart. That's not how they were seen in Jesus's day. By the time of the first century, shepherds were viewed with great suspicion in first century Judaism. They were considered to be thieves. They were considered to be liars. They were considered to be people whose testimony was not regarded as valid in a court of law. How would you like that? I'm sorry, the only witness we have is a shepherd. Well, you can't trust him. Let's find somebody else. That was the attitude. And yet, who did the angel choose to bring this announcement to? To a shepherd. God says something very powerful through this. God says something that he will take the lowly. He'll take those people who are held in low repute and he will choose them oftentimes to be bearers of his message. And the angel first appeared to them and he gave them this dramatic announcement. Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior. This is a savior. This is what the world needs. Caesar Augustus sits in his palace in Rome and he maybe has been of some type of political savior and the whole world enjoys the peace that this great man Caesar Augustus has brought in. But that's not enough. I bring to you a child who will be a savior. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what mankind needs. We need a savior. I suppose you could divide the whole world into two categories. Those who know they need a savior and those who don't know they need it yet. But you need a savior. You need somebody to rescue you from sin, from Satan, and from yourself. And Jesus has come to do exactly that. That was the angel's great announcement. And he makes this announcement. And do you understand what happens in verse 13? First, there's a singular angel making the announcement that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. I can you imagine just in this ragtag group of disreputable shepherds there on a Bethlehem hillside? And what happens? First, a singular angel. And if that's not impressive enough, right in the middle of his announcement, a whole multitude, heavenly host. I don't know how many it was, but do you know what a host conjures up the image of? An army. An army of angels was right there praising God, announcing the greatness of it. And it must have seemed so strange because I bet those angels outnumbered the shepherds at least 10 to 1. I wonder, don't doubt it all, if the angels thought, something's gone wrong here. We should be doing this to a much better audience than they am. Where was the publicity for this event? Yeah, I mean, there's a few shepherds of all people and we're proclaiming it to them. But God says, no, that's exactly who I wanted to bear this message first. So this angel made the announcement. And what did they say? You saw it there in verse 14. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Now, I know some people want to insist that the angels sang this and that the angels sang at the coming of Jesus. If you look carefully at the text, it doesn't say that they sang. But how could you say that without singing? So I err on the side of saying they sang. Why not? It doesn't say they didn't sing. So we'll give it to them that they sang. And then verse 15. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass that the Lord may be known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph Notice it now, verse 16, 
and the babe lying in a manger. So with great urgency, they didn't stand around and talk about the theological ramifications of the angels and the message that they bring. Instead, they had a sense of urgency. Let's go now and see it. And they wanted to come and see the thing that had come to pass because the angel promised them that they would see what? The sign. If you notice from the angel said, he said, you'll see a sign. And what is the sign you'll see? Not just a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. That was a dime a dozen. You're going to see a baby, you know, in a blanket. Wow, there was probably a dozen babies in blankets in Bethlehem. But lying in a manger, that's weird. That's a sign. And so they came around and they searched around until they found a baby lying in a manger. Verse 16, they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. That was a strange sight And it was the specific sign that they were told to look for. When they saw that, can you imagine how they lit up and they realized it's fulfilled. We've never seen a baby lying in a manger before. This is something of God. Verse 17. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. You see, the combination of the angelic announcement and the sign of the child in a feeding trough inspired the shepherds to say, we've got to tell everybody. And if you think about the scene, it's absolutely comical. This is the middle of the night. And basically, you have a group of guys who are regarded as thieves, as robbers, as liars, knocking on all the doors throughout Bethlehem, crying out, Jesus is born, Jesus is born. Now, Jesus was a very common name in those days. Hey, everybody, Jesus is born, Jesus is born. And say, what are you talking about? You know, they'd say to one another in the home, please check the doors that they're locked. There's shepherds outside. And yet God chose these men to be the first messengers of the good news that Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, had come into the world. Now now let me just pause right here and just make something, point that you've probably been thinking about as I've been saying it. I wouldn't mind if you've been mulling this one over, but isn't it strange and wonderful how when Jesus comes into the world, there's already surprises. It's already not the way man would have done it. Or you could go through it and pick apart sort of probably a dozen points along this continuum where you would find this is the way that God did it, but it's not the way that man would do it. Would man give the announcements to a shepherd? No. Would man have it to where this child was born in some dusty stable somewhere? No. Would man choose it for such a humble couple, Mary and Joseph, to be the parents? No. Would man give him such a common, everyday name like Jesus? No, on and on and on. And you just get more than anything this idea that comes to us so loudly and clearly from Isaiah chapter 55 that says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, God says, So my ways are higher than your ways. And you understand this, don't you? That God sometimes works in strange and mysterious and counterintuitive ways. And how we sometimes curse and afflict ourselves by demanding to figure God out. If there's any way I could, I just want to free some of you here this evening. You are hurting yourself so much. You're hurting your own soul by trying to demand that you figure out how God is moving. 
Can I say, would you just release yourself from that? You don't have to figure it out. Just trust him and love him and go along for the ride. That's enough. There's so much about this that was strange and mysterious. And do you find that wonderful phrase there? It says there in verse 19, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. You see, Mary sees the excitement of the shepherds. She doesn't know the excitement of the wise men. Although I have to see, isn't it wonderful? Now, Luke doesn't record this with the wise men. Matthew records the wise men come. But isn't this absolutely wonderful that God ordained that both great men and, uh, I don't know, small, um, ignoble men, such as the shepherds, great men and low men would hear the news. That, that rich men and poor men, so to speak, that men who were respected, men who were not respected, that they would all come. And I'll add this. The shepherds were Jewish. The, the, the wise men were Gentiles. The, the shepherds were near. The, the, the wise men came from a far way off. By the way that God welcomed this child in the world, he was saying he's for everybody. He's not just for the Jewish people. He's for the Gentile people. He's not just for the low. He's for the high. He's for everybody. But the wise men hadn't come yet. In all likelihood, they had not come on the night that Jesus was born, but sometime after. So there she has just the excited reaction of the shepherds. And they're so excited. And I'm sure Joseph is excited and relieved all at the same time. But what does Mary do? She ponders this in her heart. You know, she didn't have the access to the scrapbook thing, you know, and the... the, all the, the things people do for their babies to make the memories and all that. And it's beautiful and all of that. I don't quite get it, but it's beautiful. But what did Mary do? Mary kept it all very deeply in her heart. She treasured it away. And I, I can't get the picture out of my mind of her pouring out her soul to Dr. Luke, telling him all of this, with the vital memory still in her heart of all that had happened, just as if it had happened yesterday. Verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So when eight days were completed, Jesus, in absolute obedience to the law, that's the point Luke wants you to understand right here. The law of Moses commanded in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, that children should be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Male children, of course. And Jesus was circumcised exactly as the law prescribed. Because this man will fulfill the law in every detail on behalf of his people. Now, you and I haven't fulfilled the law, have we? Must we go through the Ten Commandments point by point and see where we fall short? I don't think that's really necessary. It's a little too painful for this evening's subject either. But this is what you need to understand. Jesus fulfilled the law on every point. And that's what Luke wants us to understand from the very beginning. Not only in the circumcision, but also verse 22 describes the days of her purification. She undergoes the ritual purification that a Jewish woman would undergo after 
her uh, giving of birth and as part of the whole ceremony, as a dedication to the Lord, verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons were offered. Now, this is sort of interesting because it suggests to us that Mary and Joseph were poor. Because we know from Leviticus chapter 12 that it commands that at the birth of a son, a lamb be offered as part of the purification and dedication ceremony. Yet it allowed that if a lamb was too expensive for the father and mother, that they could offer two birds instead. Uh, William Barclay says that this was actually given a technical name to offer two birds instead of a lamb and a bird was called the offering of the poor. Now, I find this interesting for a few reasons, just again, because it reminds us that Mary and Joseph were not a husband and wife of great means. But it also tells us this, that this almost certainly happened before the wise men visited them at some time later. Why? Because they were doing pretty good after the wise men visited. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were worth something. And so Mary and Joseph were certainly provided for by God. God provided for them, especially with the flight to Egypt that they would later take and all the expenses involved with that. But at this point, they were just a very simple, poor couple. Now, put in your mind Mary and Joseph bringing the baby Jesus to the temple for a circumcision and then for the purification rites. And there they are bringing the two young pigeons there, the turtle doves, whatever it would be, for the birds, for their offering, for the purification ceremony. And what happens? Verse 25, there they are. And the whole crowd, the press of people right there in the temple mount. Verse 25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God saying, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Isn't this strange and wonderful all at the same time? This godly man who apparently was well known in Jerusalem at the time, for some reason, he, by a God-ordained coincidence, if you want to call that. He's just walking by Joseph and Mary just as they're coming from the temple after the purification ceremony. And he looks at them and he looks at the baby Jesus right there and he goes, that's the one. God promised me that before I died, I would see his salvation. I would see his savior. And now here he is right in front of our eyes. And how strange it must have been for this old man to walk up to Mary and Joseph. And probably Mary was holding the baby Jesus. I'm going to take your baby and hold him in my arms. I got a blessing for him. Now, that would be weird, wouldn't it? But apparently Mary just knew from the Holy Spirit that this was real. This was good. This was a man of God. And he takes this baby Jesus and he pronounces just the most wonderful blessing over him, including, look at what it says in verse 32, that he would be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. You see, the amazing thing about Simeon's prophecy is that it shows that the light is for the Gentiles also. 
the, the salvation of Jesus began with Israel, but it was always intended to extend beyond Israel to the Gentiles. And Simeon right there on the Temple Mount, he saw it, he recognized, and how it must have stirred something in the soul of Mary and Joseph at that moment. I mean, look, everybody wants other people to think their baby is wonderful. But I don't know of anybody that happened with this. I'll take your baby in my arms and on the Temple Mount, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'll proclaim that he is the Messiah and the salvation of the world. But then he says this, verse 33. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. By the way, did you just notice the phrasing there in verse 33? I just I just want to dwell on it just for a moment. Joseph and his mother. It doesn't say his father and his mother. Because Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. But just a little interesting way that Luke phrases it there. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This child right here, he says three things about him. He'll be for the fall of many. The second thing, he'll be for the rise of many. And the third thing, what does he say? He'll be a sign that will be spoken against. I wonder if that troubled Mary's soul right at that moment. You know, when you believe, and it's very hard for us to put ourselves in Mary's sandals, so to speak. But if you could, if you could imagine what it would be like to know, I am mother to the Messiah. I am mother to God made flesh. It's hard to see any downside in that, isn't there? Right here, I don't know if she ever noticed it before, but she would have noticed it right here, right now. He's not just here for the rise of many, but for the fall of many. Jesus will be like a watershed where the rain comes down and people divide on two sides. Jesus will be... You know, sometimes we think of Jesus as the great uniter of humanity. In some ways, he is. He unites people from every generation, from every class, from every nation, from every ethnicity, on and on. He unites people in a glorious way. But in another way, you know this is true, Jesus divides people. Because he demands that you make a decision about who he is, one way or another. You're either going to be for him or you're going to be against him. And in that way, he'll be for the fall of some. He'll be for the rising of others. And then those words, those words. And he'll be a sign which is spoken against. Literally, that phrase, a sign which will be spoken against is he'll be a target that people shoot at. Jesus would be a target of great evil. And so no wonder that he said in verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So not just Simeon, but another godly woman named Anna came and proclaimed great things about the child Jesus. You see, there's something very special about the child. Verse 39. 
So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I find in these verses a sweet combination of the mundane and the glorious. Isn't it strange that the Messiah of Israel should be moved from Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the center of the... Uh, the, the intellectual, the spiritual, the governmental life of the Jewish people. Jerusalem was the city. Nazareth was a dusty backwater city, remarkable for nothing except for being very unremarkable as a city. That was Nazareth. And so it's very mundane that they should just return to Nazareth and live their lives there. But there's something very glorious in the way that it says the child grew and became strong and spirit filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. The goodness and the favor of God was evident in his life, even as a child. Now, I know that that you can find some things called the infancy gospels there because very early on, people couldn't resist the urge to fill in some of the details of these silent years about the life of Jesus. We know very little biblically about his boyhood. The only thing we know about his boyhood is a story we'll read about in just a moment. So they made up bizarre legends about the boyhood of Jesus. They, they, they said that he did silly miracles like talking from the major or, or healing a man who was made into a mule from a, the evil spirit or, or that he brought clay birds to life by clapping his hands and so forth. That, that, that people were healed by being sprinkled with his old bath water, things like that. It's just foolish, superstitious legends that were brought up. We know nothing of that. Nothing of that. Only really the story that we come to in verse 41. This is the one story that we read of. Look at it here, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, they returned. The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances, so they did not find him, and they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Listen, here's a little defense of Mary and Joseph. You should not think that they were bad, neglectful parents. This happened in a very natural way, and I'm sure we could find some funny stories here of forgotten children along the way. It's happened. Well, look, they were not neglectful parents. As a matter of fact, when you know how they traveled on these trips, oftentimes when they went in groups for a particular feast, men would travel together and women would travel together. And oftentimes the women group would go earlier so they could walk at a slower pace and the men would follow behind at a quicker pace. It would have been very natural for Joseph to think that Jesus was with Mary and for Mary to think that Jesus was with Joseph and the group of the men that were coming. And they come together at the end of the day and they say, well, where's Jesus? Well, I thought you had him. Well, I thought I had him. Where is he? We've got to go back to Jerusalem. And so they finally make it back to Jerusalem. They're looking around. Where's Who lost Jesus? Could you imagine the guilt that you'd have to live with if you lost the Messiah? I mean, this... You can imagine... You can imagine the arguments that must have been between Mary and Joseph on the walk back to Jerusalem. Anyway, verse 48. So it was after three days that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, 
Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which they which he spoke to them. They finally make it back to Jerusalem. And verse 48 tells us that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions for three days. The day they went out, the day they came back and the day they looked for him in Jerusalem. They finally found him a 12 year old boy holding his own with the most brilliant minds of Judaism at that day. Listening to them, asking them questions, answering them questions. And the parents are astounded by this. And you can imagine how the rabbis and the scholars and the scribes were astounded at the brilliance of this 12-year-old boy. And they say, Jesus, why did you do this to us? A very typical parental reaction. Not are you well, but why did you do this to us? Verse 48, Jesus says something remarkable. I must be about my father's business. And, you know, in that day, there was nothing more natural than for a son to take up the profession of his father. That's just how it worked. If your father was a fisherman, you'd probably be a fisherman. If your father was a carpenter, you'd probably be a carpenter. Now, Joseph was a builder. And so it was very natural for Jesus as sort of a career track to become a carpenter or a builder himself. But please notice this. He had a greater calling. His heavenly father had a business and Jesus would follow into those Footsteps. I don't know about you, and I hope I'm not reading too much into the text, but in verse 49, where I read that phrase, I must be about my father's business. Please note, these are the first recorded words of Jesus, and they are significant. There is a surprise implied by them. As if Jesus is like, Mom, Dad, haven't we talked about this? And I wonder about the conversations that the parents of Jesus had with Jesus in his 12 years up to this point. I don't think it was some kind of secret that they kept to him who he was and what his destiny was. But as, as much as he could handle at the time, they probably informed him. They probably told him. They probably told him of the prophecies, the angelic visits and what it was. There, there was some sort of shared understanding, at least on some level. We have no idea how much it was. But there's an expression of surprise here. Why couldn't you figure this out? Of course I'd be here in the temple. I'm about my father's business. But they didn't understand. You see, in Judaism of that day, A boy began to learn his father's trade at about 12 years old. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in the temple. Let's finish up the chapter here. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would mature in his boyhood and then in his young adulthood. And he would fulfill all the responsibilities expected of an elder son in that society. At some time, we don't know when, Joseph disappeared from the scene and Jesus became the man of the family. He worked his trade. He supported his family. He loved his God. And he proved himself faithful in a thousand small and seemingly insignificant ways before he ever launched out on his public ministry. Please understand, Jesus lived most of his life in the faithful obscurity of Nazareth. And we only learn anything about the last three years of his 33-year life. Most of it was lived. Ladies and gentlemen, 
as we live our lives out of the spotlight, not making headlines, but loving God, being faithful in our families, serving God wherever he puts us, being faithful in the small tasks, somehow mundane tasks, or at least seemingly so that he gives us to do this. I like one thing I read this week about this by a great man named Morrison. He says, listen, a Christian does not always do extraordinary things. He does ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And that's what Jesus did. Next week, we talk more about the extraordinary. But that'll be for chapter 3. Father, we love you. And as we think about the glory of God adding humanity to his deity and walking among us as a man, it's more than we can take in. But Lord, when we see this combination of humility and glory, uh, of the, the, the greatness and the mundane put together. It just stirs us, Lord. It stirs us to want to rededicate ourselves, to live for you, whether you put us in the spotlight or whether we're in the background. Lord, help us to live every day for your glory. We want to honor you as Jesus did. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.